years ago for uh, for Christmas, one of the probably one of the best Christmas presents I've ever received. Uh, I became enamored with a guy by the name of Wandel Mace, whose journal recorded a lot of wonderful experiences early in the church history. Uh, Cindy in those days was able to go to a BYU professor who had the journal and get a copy of the entire journal of Wandel Mace. You can now get it online, but back then I had one of the only bootleg copies of Wandel Mace's journal. Uh, it was uh, Wandel Mace who would be the, the one that would uh, it, it'd be on his door that uh, Thomas Marsh would knock uh, when he's wanting to come back into the church. Uh, Wandel Mace uh, built the first uh, street sweeper in New York City. You know, he's got a lot, and it was Wandel Mace who, in the uh, dark days of Nauvoo, they went down to the, they went down to New Orleans, got a big cannon uh, that had fallen off the ship out of the Bay of New Orleans, got it all the way back to Nauvoo. They blackened the windows in the basement of the Nauvoo Temple and refurbished this cannon in the basement of the the Nauvoo Temple. And the only way that, and then and then when the Battle of Mulholland Street, when the when the, the mob was trying to drive the saints out, uh, they fired off that cannon a few times and it slowed them down. And, and that, uh, Wandel Mace has a, a wonderful history. Uh, but uh, late spring 1844, a few months before the prophet's death, uh, Wandel reports this. Brother Joseph had spent most of his time in teaching the Twelve and the other elders... Uh, and, and giving endowments. He was so constant in his labors that they wondered why he should be so untiring in his labors. Upon one occasion, Elmerosa Pratt remarked to me, I don't know what is the matter. Joseph gives us no rest. <laughs> Either day or night. And when we ask him, he says, the Spirit urges me. On one occasion about this time when addressing the congregation, Joseph said he had rolled the burden of bearing off the kingdom onto the shoulders of the twelve. I have so diffused the priesthood, I defy all hell to overthrow it. And it, and it matters not what may become of me, I am going to rest in okay. This was the point at which he knew, after he had completed this in March of 1844, he knew that he was he could die like anybody else. Uh, that, that protection was no longer there, that he had done everything that he needed to do. Oh, how blind we were. I often think we were in the same condition as were the disciples of Jesus. He told them plainly that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But they did not comprehend his sayings. Neither did we understand Joseph. We had anticipated his departure we might, like the disciples of Jesus, been somewhat prepared and understood his sayings. I am going to rest a while. I have rolled the burden of bearing uh, off the kingdom onto the shoulders of the twelve, etc. And then Brother May says, I had no idea his mission upon earth was so near an end. Okay? Now... Fascinating part about that is that we're watching the disciples of the Savior do the same thing. They live kind of in a state of denial. Why? Because the Savior had been pretty clear, had he not? I'm going, I'm going, and going. Mary's going to anoint him to a, for his burial. 
Why are they still not getting this? That's just a natural human thing. I mean, I remember there's premonitions when my, you know, before my mom passed away, like a year, you know, there were certain things that thoughts came to my brain. It's like, no, you just don't believe it's going to happen. And we don't want to believe that it's going to happen. Yeah. Right. So we're kind of hearing, but not hearing. It's like Amulek, I knew, but I would not know. They just don't want to do that. He also knew that he performed miracles. He absolutely saved himself. He raised Lazarus. And so even if they were going to kill him, I mean, he would be... Nobody, this is the Messiah. Nobody's killing him. I know that he's saying that, but maybe it's like allegorical. Maybe he's just not really going to happen because we're really believing that he's really always going to be here with us. And he would kind of talk about coming back. Yeah, yeah. there wasn't a whole lot in their experience about people dying, being crucified, because he says, I will be uh, lifted up. They just didn't have a lot of experience with that happening and them, them returning. Okay? All right. So with that as a backdrop, let's turn to uh, John 14. And... Uh, as we do this, I want you to think for just a second. If you were, and I call this the Sermon at the Supper, because we, we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount. We talk about the Sermon at the Temple when the Savior comes to the Nephites. Well, this is the Sermon at the Supper. And you have to put this sermon that he's going to say over the, these three chapters. And John, more than anybody else, recorded meticulously what was said. Um, you have to put this sermon on par with almost any other sermon that the Savior ever got, or that we have through history. So meaty is it in, in the things that it would share. Okay? So, John 14. In my Father's house, he says, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, if we stop for a second, as through this whole process, I want you to think, if you knew that you were uh, going away, if you knew that you were dying and you just had a couple of days, last words to say to the people that you love most, what would you say? What would you want them to know? In this case, I'm going to ask that question again in just a second. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And then I love this little, this little give and take. And it gives you some view into, into what the thinking is with these, with these disciples. Um, I go to prepare a place. Verse 3, where that where I am, you may be also. And whither I go, you know the way, you know. You know where I'm going and you know the way. Now, if you're, if you're literal, as they were at this point, and they're not necessarily getting the symbolism of the way, and he says, the way you know, what would, they be, what would their response be? We do. Um, and that's why I love Thomas. He's going, um, Lord, we, not know, we, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? The way you know. No, we don't. We don't know where you're going. Give us more information about the way. Uh, yeah. Wasn't that him 
the well, way, the Savior? Certainly, yeah, because then in verse 6, what is he going to say? Oh. I am the way. <laughs> Oops. Oh! Okay, and in fact, there have been a number of scholars that have suggested that even though we talk about the Church of Jesus Christ of former day saints or the Church of Jesus Christ, that among believers uh, in the first century AD, when they referred to the church, they would generally call it the way. I, I belong to the way. The way meaning I am the way. So, he's getting, so I love Thomas going, well, we don't know. You say we know, but we don't know. Where are you going? And he goes, you said we know the way. We don't know the way. Where's the way? What road? What, what path? Where are you going? And, and then the Savior just going to go, Thomas, I am the way. You see Thomas go, oh, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> this, is, this is believing Thomas. This is anxious to follow Thomas. That's why the doubting Thomas thing has always been a sad appellation that was placed on him. This is anxious to serve, anxious to be with you, Thomas. This is, I love you, Thomas. Where are you going? I'll go to. I'll go to. Oh, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father. Um, now, what's he going to do to, to help them with that? Well... And I'm conscious of every verse here is so late, and it's a little bit like doing the Sermon on the Mount. When you start skipping over, you're aware of all the meaty stuff. You're, we're, we're drinking out of the fire hose, okay? And we're just trying to get little gulps. Um, so he says, uh, if you ask anything in my name, verse 14, I'll do it. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. You want to follow the way? Keep my commandments. That's how you're going to do this. Then he's going to say, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter. Now, today what I want to do is I want to change in your mind, when you look at the word comforter, I want you to think in terms of what the, the Greek word and what he was really saying, because it will change, I think, the way that you look at this. Uh, the Greek word for comforter is advocate. Advocate. See if that doesn't change in, in a sense what we're talking about here. Uh, I will pray unto the Father and He will give you another advocate that He may abide with you forever, uh, even the Spirit of truth. Uh, the world cannot receive, it seeth Him not. Uh, he shall know, He dwells with you, shall be in you. I will not leave you Without an advocate. I will come unto you. And then he's also, if we hop down here in verse 26, but the advocate, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And he will do it in the role of an advocate. Now, why don't you think for a second, in what way is the Holy Ghost an advocate? Sometimes that's the most comfort you can have, is just knowing you're not alone. Yeah, and knowing that there's somebody there for you. Okay, I think, yeah. Well, it's interesting, as a, as a parent, 
are an advocate for our child, continually watching over, trying to lead, direct, hope things will go right, but always there. I believe that we call that mama bear, right? When somebody goes all mama bear, it's like, don't mess with my kid. Okay, yeah. Yes. And how comforting is that? Okay. Yeah. I really like this is and do this and do this and do this. Well, it also gives you some idea of kind of where you are heart wise, because how many fourteen year olds really want to be told what to do? <laughs> I don't want to be told what to do. I want to do what I want to do, not don't give me a checklist. You give me a checklist. That tells me the list of things to not do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Hold on to that thought. I want to give you an idea of in, in one way, in what way that the, the comforter, the advocate, is an advocate for you. And, it's, and to me, it's always one of the more haunting uh, verses in all of the Bible. This actually is in Romans 8. Um, let's hop over to Romans 8 for a sec. 26. Uh, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Okay? Well, how does He do that? And then here comes, here comes the phrase, and think about this when you, are, when you pray tonight or tomorrow or something like that. Think about this line. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. You don't know what to pray for. Joseph Smith would tell the saints in Nauvoo, you don't even know how to pray. You need to become aware of people like David who prayed three times with his face towards the temple. Daniel. Like Daniel. Okay? For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit maketh intercession, and we could change that to the Spirit advocates for you for us with groanings Joseph Smith said utterances with groanings which cannot be uttered uh, and Joseph changed that a little bit to say the Holy Spirit would make it intercession for us day and night I think it's interesting because I've been thinking a lot lately about how there's power in asking. Yeah. That the Lord knows our needs. He knows our mind. He knows what's there. But hearing us ask for it is important. And so this is just furthers that because now the Spirit's going to ask for the things that we don't know we need to ask for. Yes. And think about, so, so when is the Spirit doing the advocacy for you? Day and night. 
Constantly. You're asleep. Is the Spirit advocating for you? Yes. Yes. Cannot be uttered in language, and not only that, um, it's a little bit like if you know if you're if if you've got a child or grandchild who's saying to you, "I want some cake," <laughs> and you're saying, "Yes, she wants broccoli." <laughs> no, I thought I said cake exactly. Give her broccoli. <laughs> I want a lot of cake. No, give her broccoli and a little cake, okay? In other words, we're going to interpret what it is that you're really needing. You know, what, what if a man, remember the Savior's talking about it. What if a man asking for bread and you're going to give him a stone? What happened if he'd said to, to David as he's getting ready to fight Goliath, I think I'll give you bread. No, he really needed a stone. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've got some biscuits in our house that David could have used. Yeah. <laughs> now, in other words, the Savior, for the advocacy, He's going to give us what we... The Spirit is advocating for what? What we need rather than what we want, and especially what we think we want. We know our life. We know what we want. I want that. Yeah, give her the broccoli. Well, so you mentioned the word interpret. Could it also be then that he, as we are praying, (coughs) he is conveying to Heavenly Father, we'll know what she really What she really means, yes, exactly. And then that, in turn, distills upon our heart to think, oh, I... I forgot what I wanted. Now I want this. (laughs) I know. See, this is where we get in the bind of saying, Heavenly Father, um, what I want to do is I want to learn more patience. And we really think the Spirit is on the other side going, she says she wants more adversity. (laughs) Give her more trial. Okay? As opposed to, this is our advocate. And the advocate is going to do things for us that put us in the best light. Is it for our best good? And has to interpret for our natural man and woman who thinks it knows what it wants, but we need an advocate that's going to say, no, here, they really need the broccoli. Yeah? Well, it's somewhat conditional for this advocate to work towards us. I taught a lesson um, a while back, and, and this was a quote that I thought was good. It said, if you seek his help, be sure your life is clean. Your motives are worthy, and you are willing to do what he asks. <coughs> For he will answer your prayers. He is your loving father. You are his beloved child. He loves you perfectly and wants to help you. And so in order for that advocate to be able to support and help us, we have to be in place we need to be. Now, let me take a piece of that. Is there a possibility that sometimes we're on our knees saying, Father, I will do anything? I will, I will absolutely do anything you need me to do if you will just grant me this blessing. 
Okay? And I wonder if the spirit's on the other side saying, well, not so much. <laughs> he won't do absolutely everything, but he will do this. <laughs> Let me interpret that a little bit. He was a little caught up in the moment. He really didn't mean he would do absolutely everything. But at this point in his life, he will at least do this much. In other words, the advocate is going to be our intercessory with, the, with God to receive those blessings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So really, what are we trying to find out in prayer? What He wants us to do. We're not using that. Because for one thing, if this spirit, if this advocate, if this comforter has been already negotiating for you, working on stuff, He's already working with the, the Spirit to say, let's, let's put together a package that is in their best interest. Which is amazing when I have... Men that, for instance, that I work with uh, predominantly, but not completely, but predominantly the struggle with uh, pornography. And it's a struggle. And, and they may be sitting in, in my office or in their prayer saying, please take this from me. I've done everything that I know how to do to get rid of it. Please take it from me. And as I was trying to explain to one good brother the other day, I said, I don't know when the Lord will take it from you. He will at some point. But, well, why doesn't he take it now? <laughs> my life would be so much better, and my wife would be happier, and, and the spirit would be unrestrained and all that, if, if he could just take it now. How come he won't take it now? Well, obviously it's in your best interest that he not take it now. Well, wouldn't it be better if it's gone now? <laughs> well, that, it would look that way, doesn't it? Or, Kevin, could it also be that he's not taking it because the person, man or woman, is... Needs to find the yeah. source of why they can't get rid of it. There is some reason why he's leaving it with you because nobody wants that pornography out of your brain more than he does. As much as it drives you nuts, it drives him nuts more. So, yeah, he wants it gone, so why would he leave it? Well, then it obviously is in your best interest that it stay for right now. I don't get that. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. I don't understand why it is he would want it right. I don't know either. But for some reason unknown, only by the Lord, it's important that it not be taken yet. We do that sometimes with the other things that we struggle with in our life. It makes sense that it should be taken now, and it hasn't been, and I don't know why. Well, you mean the Lord knows that it, yeah, the Lord has the power to take it, yes. How come He hasn't taken it yet? Well, it's somehow in your best interest. For me to suffer? Well, yeah. <laughs> There's something in there. I don't understand what it is. Okay? Part of the refining process. It is part of the refining process. Okay? Now, I've got another question, though, on this. So, this one we understand. He's going to help with our infirmities, he's going to make intercession. But here's my question. I'll read that one for a sec. 
The Spirit is an advocate. Who else might he be advocating for? Why would the Spirit have to advocate for Heavenly Father to us? One reason could be because we're mortal. And? And he is perfect. And so the way he sees things is much greater than we may be able to handle. Okay. Right. Right. The Holy Ghost is a spirit, and so, I don't know, the scriptures, it makes it so we can feel his presence in us. I don't know. Okay, present. Now, we might not recognize what it is we need to be doing. Yes. Or we don't necessarily recognize how he works. In just a second, we're going to run across the scripture and it says, This is life eternal to know thee. Well, how many times do we not know thee? Or do we not know the Savior? And he's going to say, well, part of his advocacy for the Father is to advocate for the Father. Let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you how much he loves you. Let me tell you how he works. And wouldn't that be comforting? When we think he's one thing, and it turns out he's a far greater loving, powerful, far-seeing God than we thought he was. How comforting for somebody coming into the church when they to discover, you know, he really is our father. <laughs> really, li- he literally is our father. Wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. Well, the Spirit is going to advocate. The Spirit is going to bear witness that it, that that's true. He has to teach us who the Spirit, who the Father is. Does that make sense? Okay. So I think when we talk about this process of advocating, he's going to say, okay, there is a. That is going to comfort it. It's that stand in the breach for us and advocate for the Father to us and for us to the Father. Wow, that's quite a job. It would almost take a God to do that, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, wait. He is. Okay, now. Isn't that kind of like people that do sign language? You know, I love it when they sit there and they do sign language, but their words are not exactly what the person is saying. It's interpreted to the people that can't hear in their language that they understand. It's a great way to put it. Yeah, the sign language, and in some ways that sign language can't go uh, word for word, letter for letter, but it's going to do it in, in terms of symbolism and things. Uh, to, to get that message across. Like it skips over the little teeny tiny insignificance twos and it. To the important stuff. Right. Okay. That's kind of Alright. So so Joseph Smith is going to say the Spirit of the Lord here's what he'll do in his advocating role. He will whisper peace and joy to your souls. We're going to talk about peace in a second. It will take malice, hatred, strife and evil from your heart. And your whole desire will be to do good, bring forth righteousness, and build up the kingdom of God. And you say, well, on my good days I'm there. He caught me in the middle of church, okay. Catch me in the middle of a bad day, not so much. Okay, now. 
However, on this subject of comforters, the Savior is going to say, I, I will send you another comforter, another advocate, that being the Holy Ghost. Who is the first comforter? He is. Okay? And sometimes we talk about somebody that's going to get to a certain point, they're going to receive the second comforter. Meaning, a personal visit with the Savior to explain kind of where their life is. Now, I, I, I've always really loved this from, from uh, DNC 45. I think we've been granted to see a little bit of, if, if not an ordinance, at least something almost symbolically that feels to me like an ordinance. If you ever wondered what is exactly going to happen before the bar of God when we're being judged, you know, and we have this, I don't know if you ever, sometimes when I was working in mental health, I would have to take some of my clients to court, you know, and I would, and I would be their advocate, you know, and I'd be standing with them, and we're going to go up and we're going to stand in front of the judge. Um, and I, I've, I've told this story before, I had one, one uh, wonderfully mixed up man that uh, the judge told him that he was going to take away his driver's license. And he said, because you were driving without a license and everything, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm revoking that, and uh, young man, do you have any questions? And this, this schizophrenic guy looks right at the judge, and he says, yes, I'd like to know what a hollow point does to a skull on impact. <laughs> and, and the judge looks at me, and I'm like... And then he's looking at the guy and he goes, young man, what did you say? You said, And he said, you asked if I had any questions, and I do. What does a hollow point do to a skull on impact? And he looks back at me and I'm like, ah, sorry, judge. And I said, your honor, I'm so sorry. I will take him out and beat him severely in just a second. No. And I, I, can, I can see the bailiff walking down the aisle with his hands on his gun like, <laughs> I'm so sorry he's having a really bad day. Don't take it out on me, please. <laughs> uh, and then got it, then hustled him out of the courtroom. Uh, one of those great moments. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> My, my advocacy at that point was get him the heck out of this courtroom before he says anything else stupid and we both end up behind bars. <laughs> okay. So, so the, the idea then of this, this advocacy, when we want to know what is going to happen at the bar of God and we picture that. Here's the judge and it's almost, I don't know about you, but I picture like this, like this, like this uh, judge's thing that's like 10 feet tall and the judge is way up there and we kind of, you know, it's your turn at the bar of God. Okay. It's my fine, get to find out where my final resting place is. Am I going to the celestial kingdom, terrestrial? It's like he's going to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And he's up on top of that thing and I'm going to walk up and look up like that. He's going to look down on me and go, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> Take him away. <laughs> Okay. We, we picture that. It's like this is the moment and now for all eternity this is my moment to find out did I pass the bar or not? <laughs> I'm forever cast out now. Okay, 
That's not it at all, is it? But that's our picture of the bar of God, the justice of God. We're going to be judged of God. We picture that. Okay? The Savior in, in, for, verse, uh, in, chapter, in section 45 gives us a glimpse of what that thing will look like. Listen to him who is the advocate, the comforter. He's the advocate with the Father. And who's he advocating for? Us. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him. What is he saying at this bar of God? Saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin. He's not, he's not looking up at the Father and saying, Behold these people who are now perfect and sinless. It's like he's saying, We know that they screwed up a lot. I'm not asking you to accept them on their merits. Because if we're going to go on their merits, they're not going to make it. I want you to admit them based on my merits. In this case, it's like a a, a defense attorney saying, Behold the suffering of this person who did wrong. I don't want you to consider their life. I want you to consider (coughs) my life. I I want you to judge them based on my life, not their life. I will be the advocate for them based on my what I did. And I will vouch for them. Do it on my life. That's amazing to me. Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren. I think that's I think that feels very real to me. I could see the moment where the Savior stands in the breach as an advocate. How comforting would that be to those of us? It's like I don't want to be judged on my merits, but my life is going to be judged based on his merits and what he did, and he, he will be my advocate. That's that's an amazing step. That's the comforter. See, that's the point at which with somebody who doesn't understand, aren't you glad that he has a comforter, an advocate who's advocating for him? Say, I know he's saying that, but what he really means is, let me interpret that about where he is and what's going on with him at this moment in his life. Wherefore, Father, spare these, my brethren. Spare him. It's just beyond my grasp, beyond my ability to understand. Okay. Now, one last thing then on this, on comforting. 
Why would the Lord be having a great conversation about comforting now? Because He's leaving. Yeah. And He's trying to set the stage for them as He's leaving. Okay, yeah. And because He loves them. Yeah. I mean, they've spent so much time together. He really does love these brethren. He, he really does. Uh, so now, as part of this, let's, look, let's go back to John 14. So what he's going to tell them is, uh, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Now here comes the caveat. Not as the world uh, uh, giveth, give I unto you. Let your not heart be troubled and be afraid. Now, let's stop for a sec. If we go generally to the world, how do they consider peace? What does peace look like to the world? Not fighting. Contention. Less. Or lack of tribulation. Lack of tribulation. So they're going to say, okay, the world says that I'm going to give you peace, and peace in this setting means no conflict. What's he saying to his disciples? Yeah, so there's going to be a different kind of of world. In fact, he's going to tell them in just a second, in this world you will have tribulation. So what he's really saying is there will be peace. I'm going to give you my peace, but it's going to be peace in the face of tribulation. Peace in spite of conflict. Rather than we can't have peace because there's still conflict in the world. The world would say, can't we just all get along? And if it's all a matter of can't we just get along, then there shouldn't be any divisions and any religion works. And whatever anybody wants to do is just the right thing because you don't want to say somebody that something's morally wrong because that then they get all angry and upset. So every road works and every religion is the same. And whatever anybody does, that's okay with them because what are we after? Peace. peace. We want peace and no arguing. So I'm not going to argue with about anything. Whatever politics you have is just fine. Nothing is better. Nothing is worse. No religion is better. It's just all the same. So I want peace. I think in the world, they also think having wealth is peace. Because then I don't have to worry oh. about finances or anything. And yet we see so many people that are wealthy, that are miserable. Oh, well, they are. But, but I was reading a, a book not long ago and one guy said... Nothing says happiness like bucks in the bank. <laughs> yeah, bucks in the bank, that's guaranteed happiness. But the problem is it isn't enough bucks. I'm not happy yet, therefore I need more bucks. And I need more bucks. The pro athlete that's getting you know, $15 million a year and I was supposed to be happy, and I was happy until I found out somebody was getting $18 million. Now I'm not happy anymore because somebody's making more than me. So I'll only be happy when I have 18 until somebody's making 25. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> okay, I want to give you an example of, of what happens with this when we talk about peace. Uh, 
and it's with Enoch. I'm, I'm going to flip over here to Moses 7. Look verse 43, Moses 7. Enoch is being given this vision of the future, right? He's being given the vision. Uh, Enoch saw that Noah built an ark, and that the Lord smiled on it and held it in his own hand. Just picture that. You know, what a wonderful thing. It's like there, there are my, there's Noah and his kids and the animals and, you know, the zebras made it. And, and stuff like that. And there they are. And he's holding it in his hands. But then the opposite of that is, but upon the residue of the wicked, the floods came and swallowed them up. So not, on one side he's watching the ark being held in the hand of God and they're safe. What's the, the other thing that he's watching? Millions of people drowning. Drowning is a really painful death, and he's watching millions of his children's 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 drowning. I can't even imagine how horrible that would be. You know, sometimes when I've thought about, I want to go back in the millennial movie thing, and you get to go back to whatever you want to do. It'd be like, okay, I want to see the parting of the Red Sea, the children safe to the other side, until we get to the Egyptian part. Then I'd like to turn that part off. Absolutely. I'd like to see a lot of scenes in, from Nephite history. Uh, I would like to skip Camorra. Because there are some things that would just be horrible to view. And so Noah is being given this, this horrible thing. I, uh, and he's watching millions of people drown. And as Enoch saw this, he had bitterness of soul. Boy, I think it's an understatement. And wept over his brethren. Now, you might say, well, they were wicked. They deserved it. They were warned and wouldn't listen. They're just getting their just desserts. Tells your son. Yeah, right. Unless it's somebody that you really love and you say, I know he deserves it. But I, wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren. Okay? He wants to be their advocate, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, isn't there one more shot? Can we at least get another boat? They get it now. The, the flood waters are rising. Can we just stop that for a second? I'll bet more people will go on the second boat. <laughs> I really do, I think. Can we just like stop it and, and uh, like another one? There is another bus coming along later. <laughs> you guys missed the first one, but here comes the second one, and it will be and it will have to be a whole lot bigger than the first one. But there's no second bus. There's no second bus. Well, there is a second bus. Yeah, and that's what he's going to find out. And look, but look at his words. He had bitterness of soul, and he wept over his brethren, and he said to the heavens, I refuse to be comforted. How many times in our own lives, because of the painful things that we're going through, do we put ourselves in a position to say, that's too much? I refuse to be comforted. The Savior's trying to comfort us. The Spirit is trying to comfort us. And we're saying, this hurts too much. I refuse. If I don't hurt X amount, then I'm dishonoring their memory. Or this is, then you don't understand how bad this really was. If this was really bad, I need to hurt this bad. I refuse to be comforted. 
Or I just can't believe this is happening, I refuse. Wow. I refuse to be comforted. I refuse to be advocated for. And then listen to the Lord's response. To any of us who would be in a position where we say, I refuse to be comforted. This hurts too much. This particular pain is too hard. And what he says, the Lord says to someone who doesn't want to be comforted, what does he say? Last line. Lift up your heart. Where? To him. Where can you lift your heart to? Him. Lift up your heart. Be glad. And then here's the key word. And and if you remember nothing else from today, I want you to get this one. Lift up your heart, be glad, and look. Look. Look at what? What does he now see? In this process of not wanting to be advocated for, and he's hurting and he's in pain. And it came to pass that Enoch looked. From Noah and he beheld the families of the earth, and he cried unto the Lord, saying, When shall the day of the Lord coming? What's he looking for? The coming of the Savior. Look! When shall the blood of the righteous be shed and all they that mourn be sanctified and have eternal life? And the Lord says it will be in the meridian time. And 47, And Enoch saw the day of the coming of the Son of Man, what we're studying right now, the coming of the Comforter, even in the flesh, and this heart that refused to be comforted. Then he says, and his soul rejoiced. Where there was comfortless and pain, now there was joy. And the difference was, he saw the Comforter, he saw the Advocate. Who's going to be advocating for those lost souls at the time of Noah? The Savior. And remember, I won't take time to do it, when you go back to look at uh, Peter, and Peter talks about it in his writings, and he talked about how the Savior, I think it's 1 Peter 4, 6, where he talks about going into the spirit world, and who does he find in the spirit world? All these wicked who have been waiting since when? It's in the days of Noah. That's what Enoch saw. That as much as painful death is, that there is a Savior coming. And He will stand in the breach and say, based not on their life, based on my life, spare these my brethren. And He went into the, in the three days of darkness and went God. It's just magnificent to me. Okay? Alright. Okay. Yeah. How are we doing?
Okay. Now, in the time remaining, we need to kind of move forward a little bit. David O. McKay, uh, speaking about the next chapter here, says, The intercessory prayer in John chapter 17 is one of the most glorious prayers, I suppose the greatest prayer, ever uttered in this world, not accepting the Lord's Prayer. This was Christ's prayer uttered just before he entered the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of the betrayal. It must have been impressive for John to remember so much of it and to write it word for word as he has here. The occasion itself would be impressive to John and undoubtedly as they knelt there in the upper room before they went through that beautiful gate into Gethsemane, the Garden of Olives at the base of the Mount of Olives, he noted particularly the plea of the Savior. I know of no more important chapter in the Bible. Quite a statement from a prophet. I know of no more important chapter. Think about all the great chapters in the Bible. I kind of like Isaiah 53 myself. We'll talk about that this winter. But uh, I know of no important chapter in the Bible. Okay, So... I want to spend the remaining time that we've got looking at uh, John 17. And this is the great intercessory <clears throat> These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Now, I just want you to picture for a second. Because so much of this is we have to be able to put it in context before you understand exactly what's going on and why it's happening the way it is. Okay? So now you have this great sermon that's being given. They've just done the Last Supper. He's washed their feet. Uh, everything is said. He's been teaching them. And then comes the moment when the Savior prays in their midst. We have another instance of the Savior doing this with the Nephites. And so powerful were his words on those on that moment that we can't even write them. This gives you some idea about what it is that he was saying because I assume it would be similar. So this is, I just picture these wonderful disciples and they're finally starting to get it and he's teaching them about peace and comforters and all that and then he's going to say, okay, and now I'm going to comfort for you. I'm going to advocate for you in real time right in front of you. Watch this kind of thing. This is what I do. Because this, there's an intercessory prayer and I need you to hear what I'm saying to the Father. The Savior could have prayed this prayer out of their hearing. But He prays it in front of them because He needed them to hear this. Father, the, uh, the hour has come. Glorify Thy Son. In fact, in just a few minutes they will, they will then leave the upper room and then they will go down. Uh, they will cross. We'll get into more of this probably next week. That they will cross, drop down into the valley of Kidron, up the other side, and then up into the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? But right now, he's going to finish with this. 
as thou hast given me power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many. Now, who gets eternal life? Interesting phrase here as he starts into this intercessory prayer, the prayer for them. Who gets eternal life? Yeah, look at, uh, give as many as thou hast given him. What do we give to somebody else? Gifts, right? Have you ever thought about yourself as a gift to God? Mary did the great gift of the spikenard and the, and the oil and all of that. But have you ever thought about yourselves as a gift to Him? And who was the giver? Yeah. He's going to say, now, so this is going to be, thou hast given Him. And, and by the way, it occurred to me, we are talking about this, think about one of the great traditions that we have, and I don't know if this is exactly where the beginnings of this came from, but it suddenly hit me that if it didn't, it's at least powerfully symbolic for what we're talking about. In a traditional wedding, here comes the bride, right? And the bride, who's going to walk the bride down, down the altar, down the aisle? The father does. So the father is going to walk with the bride and he's going to deliver her to who? To the bridegroom and hand her off. And in fact, in some wedding ceremonies, they'll say, who gives this bride? Who gives this woman? And it's the, up to the dad to go, okay, I do. Okay, all right, so we're going to do that. Okay, now, isn't that in essence what's happening here? The father says, she was my daughter, and I love her, and I care about her, and I'm going to get, walk her down the aisle, and I'm going to give her to who? To a bridegroom. And why a bridegroom? Because even though she's my daughter and I love her, she can never, ever, ever be everything that she was intended to be until I give her away. So that she is now then given to the bridegroom who can then, who then accepts her as a gift. Do you give yourself to him? Yeah. Will you receive her? Yes. So that she can now become everything that I intended her to be. And it's a gift from the father to the bridegroom. Yeah, well, yeah. The, if, in essence, here, here's kind of what happens. If you think about traditionally in the early Christian church, here's what they understood. Is that always, always the bridegroom was the... Savior and who was the bride? The church. The church. That's why she's veiled. It could be. It could be anybody. You know. It's like this is. There's a symbol, symbolic uh, church here being given to the bridegroom, and that's why we're going to talk about the bridegroom in just a second. Okay, but it's a gift given by the Father for the for the churches for our individual growth. And develop. That's why, brethren, even those of, we're also included in this bride being walked down the aisle because it's a it's the church. 
Yeah. 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 You know, Brother Wilcox is always a problem for me. <laughs> because any time that I spend like education week getting ready to go teach some classes at education week, I always get there and, and Michael Wilcox is there the same year with the same stuff better. <laughs> Because he's just magnificent in the way that he does. So I always sit at his feet. I learn from him. And then I come back the next year. I come up with something new. Wilcox won't get this. And I show up. Oh, Wilcox has got this. And it's uh, with stuff I never even dreamed of. Okay. Okay. Not that I'm jealous or anything of my own. Okay, maybe I am a little early. Yeah, I know. Okay. So, so we are the gift. Now, then we get the great phrase. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In other words, it is eternal our eternal life rests on what? Knowing him. For us to gain eternal life, we must know Him. That's, that's why we need an advocate. An advocate of the Spirit advocating this is who the Father is. And we need somebody on our side. Okay, He's a little stupid today. Teach Him so that He can now, you know, the Spirit's going to night and day advocate me with the Father. I'm very grateful for that. Okay? Now, but I, but I want you to look at it in this context. This is life eternal that they may know the, uh, the only true God. Um, I want to hop over for just a sec. Last year, um, the spring actually, we had a chance to talk about the parable of the ten virgins. We talked about the fact that with the, with the ten virgins, uh, they, all, they all show up to be able to serve at the wedding feast, right? Because the bridegroom's coming. The wedding feast is on its way. All ten are there to serve. All ten show up with their lamps. Because he waits in coming, the, the rolling party takes a while to get there, get all the friends, he bring all of his friends, they're going to greet him there, then roll to the next house, then roll to the next house, then roll to the next house. They're just taking forever. And then they start kind of getting tired. It gets later and later and later. And I was there with my lamp, and then I'm there with my lamp, and then I just... Pass out. So it says they slumbered. So they're snoozing away outside the place of the wedding feast. And then the cry comes out, He's coming, He's coming. So what do they do? They wake up and trim their lamps. They break off all the little stuff that might keep the light from really shining. And then they look and it's late. So the oil has kind of been depleted. So there's half of the gang that then reaches their, into their oil of waiting. They had additional oil in their vessel. They then fill that uh, uh, lamp, and now they're ready to go. What about the rest of them? Wait a minute, I have no way. I, don't, I had oil for serving. I just didn't have oil for waiting. Wow. Okay. So in the middle of all of that then, um, I want to look at 
and of what happens on the back end of that. Verse 10. And while these other five, the, the, the five of them then get to go in to the, the wedding feast, it's come, they get to be part of the party, and they get to serve. They get to hold their lamps high and be part of this. Okay? They went to buy. The bridegroom came, and they that were, were ready went in with them to the marriage, and the door was shut. <coughs> Eleven. Afterwards came also the other virgins. Now, I have to think, where at midnight, where are they going to find oil to buy? They're like banging on shop doors and going over to the oil shops and stuff like that. There's not a lot happening. Probably where'd they have to go? Probably home. Might have to go all the way back to their house and start over. Go get their additional oil that they should have brought in the first place. They were being short-sighted about how long the wait might be. So they probably have to go all the way home. So now they're going to get their little oil. They're going to fill up their vessels. And now they're hustling back, back here to the place of the, and the door shut. So you imagine there's just a little sheepishness going on here. Like, um, we're back. Hello? Yeah, we got it this time. We got enough. Now, the, the, uh, the bridegroom is the one who answers. He's the he in this. The bridegroom answers, and his, and his answer is always a little surprising if you don't see the context in this. It sounds actually rather harsh. And it sounds kind of odd because the who hired these guys in the first place? The bridegroom did. So they're knocking on the door and he opens the door, this bridegroom, and he says, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. I don't know you. And they might say, wait, remember, you hired us? We were here all night long, and then we had to go get oil, and I can't believe I forgot it. That's so stupid. Yeah, but here I am, and can we get in? And he's going, I don't even know who you are. Now, there have been a number of BYU scholars that have looked at this wording, because it shows up in a few places, and believe that what happens in this phrase is that it's actually reversed. And then it's just kind of been a little bit mistranslated. And now it makes perfect sense. If we say, Verily I say unto you, you know me not. What is it that they don't know? They didn't know the bridegroom, right? They didn't know that he had enough friends that it was going to take a while to gather all of his friends. They didn't know the bridegroom. They didn't know how he operates. They didn't know how he thinks. They don't know what he does. And he very easily could have said, I'm glad you're back, but you really don't know me. And I, in, my, in, my, in my bridal supper, I need to be surrounded by my friends. And my friends know who I am. They know me. They know who I am, how I operate, how I work. They know who I love. They know what I need. My friends know me. And I think that's what he's saying to them. So now, if we go back, 
This is life eternal that they may know thee. That's why we have to have an advocate, a comforter, to teach us who he is. That's why we go to the temple on a regular basis to be taught who he is and how he operates and what he's looking for, what he requires from us, what a covenant looks like. We have to know who he is. Savior's going to say, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Um, now, here comes, here comes that this phrase that I think. Oh, and by the way, uh, I forgot to put this in here. Okay. Go back up here. Okay, so he's going to. Verse 2, he's going to say, I'm going to offer this prayer for all those the Savior has given me. And, and, and immediately we think of who is, he, who is the Lord given him? The disciples, right? Those that are there. Okay? Look at... Look at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone. Lest you miss it as you're reading down through the corridors of time. Unless you think I'm just talking about the disciples. Neither pray for I, neither pray I for these alone, but for them which, uh, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Anybody ever read the New Testament? Do you believe on Peter? Do you believe on Paul? Do you believe on Matthew? Do you believe on John? Do you believe that? Absolutely. Then he's then this prayer's for you. All those who would read the words of the disciples and then believe on Him are part of the ones He's praying for in the intercessory prayer. This is, this is your prayer. He is advocating for you, anybody that's going to believe on these words. This is your prayer. Wow. Okay. What about these? What about us along with Peter? and Andrew? You're in the same boat as Andrew. Okay. What do, I get? what do I want? Well, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they uh, may also be one in us, that the world may believe uh, thou hast sent me. Okay? Uh, I, verse 23, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Okay? Now, without making this too heavy. Yeah? I was just going to say, you know, you've always said that when things are repeated in the scriptures, that we need to really pay attention to them. And when we're told about the gifts of the Spirit, we hear that one of the gifts of the Spirit is to be able to believe and bear testimony. And another gift of the Spirit is to be able to believe on those people. On those, absolutely. And so we're hearing it twice, once in this prayer, and then once again, you know, in Yeah, okay. Alright, so, so let me just put this uh, in the last couple of minutes. I want to kind of bring this down right here. So he's talking about this process of us becoming one with him as he is with the Father. We have a name for that. What is the process of becoming at one with him? 
What's the process of at one The atonement. The atonement. The at-one-ment. That's what this is. The process of becoming one is the at-one-ment. It's the process of becoming one. Okay, so if I... It's going to sound like I'm demeaning a little bit. I'm really not. What is... What is the purpose of the atonement? Because we always talk about it. The atonement is... What's it supposed to do? Yeah. And how will that happen? Cleansing. By the cleansing, right? The, The atonement is a process by which we become clean. You know what? That's only the side benefit. What's the what is the purpose of the atonement, the atonement? To become one, to become like him, to become one with him. And in order to do that, we have to remember the atonement has three parts. Remember? Number one, there is the redeeming part. It is the cleansing of our sins. That's the that's the first part. Second part is the enabling part. The day-to-day empowering of ourselves to get past, to bring us peace in the midst of tribulation. That's number two. And finally, number three for the atonement is the transformational, the mighty change. To make us different. To make us what? One. With Him. We think like Him. We act like Him. We believe like He does. We love like He does. We become like Him. The, pro- the purpose of the atonement is to be at one with the Savior and at one with the Father and have them be at one with us. What? That's amazing. That is just beyond our power to just kind of absorb that thing. Okay? So, let me, let me in the, the time remaining here, uh, we might end up just a... I want to finish with this quote by uh, Elder Maxwell, uh, who had who had the the ability, I think, to see this discipleship and this at oneing process as much as anybody I've ever read. <laughs> Many of us are kept from the eventual consecration because we mistakenly think that somehow. By letting our will be swallowed up in the will of God, we will lose our individuality. We think we're going to just turn into like mindless sheep. We're all going to look the same way and act the same way. And we're going to lose our individuality. What we are really worried about, of course, is giving up not ourselves, but selfish things. Like our roles, our time, our preeminence, and our possessions. No wonder that we are instructed by the Savior to lose ourselves. Because <laughs> when we lose ourselves, then we're going to find ourselves. And what are we going to find? That we're like Him. That we love like Him. That we see life the way that He does. That our desires are changed to be like Him. That we are at one. He is only asking us to lose the old self. Sounds like C.S. Lewis. He is only asking us to lose the old self in order to find the new self. It is a question not of one's losing identity, but of finding one's true identity.
I think that's magnificent. So this process then of, uh, again, if you picture these disciples, and, and, we're, and, and next week we're going to kind of go through the Gethsemane and, and uh, everything that went with that. Yeah. That is from... No, that is... If thou endure it well. Page 54. Think about these disciples that are about to go from this um, internship with the Savior in their midst to now He's about to be taken from them and the question is now what will they do in terms of taking what they know and they're kind of being, they're about to be pushed out of the nest to have to go and carry the doctrines forward. I think it's a little bit like uh, the disciple, a lot like after the death of the prophet Joseph and Brigham and, and uh, Wilfred Woodruff and John Taylor and Heber C and all those sat around just crushed and then realizing they had the keys, but what do we do with it? Congratulations. Uh, I saw, it was interesting, uh, and I'll finish with this. In, in this room on Sunday, yesterday morning, interesting experience. A uh, beautiful lesson taught by a, by a wonderful uh, stake young men's president. And we had, we had the, the deacons quorum presidents, we had the teachers quorum presidents, we had the priest first assistant, and then we had the bishops uh, and, and the young men's presidents all in the same room. What, uh, what Brother Crandall did so well in this room is these first three rows, he says, I want the deacons quorum presidents, the teachers quorum presidents, I want the young men right here. Jeremy was right here in front of him. First three rows, okay? And then he said, everybody else, go back, sit, you guys go sit back there. And then he started to teach them who they were. Who's got the keys? Deacon's Corp presidents. Who's got the keys? Teacher's Corp. And bishops. Nobody else has the keys. You guys got the keys. Who's supposed to be running the meetings? You are. And we had a wonderful bishop at the back here. He raised his hand to answer something. And Brother Crandall says, no, not interested right now. I'm just talking to these guys. Because these are the guys that are supposed to run their meetings. These are the ones that are supposed to plan the lessons. These are the ones supposed to plan the activities. And it's not supposed to be top down coming from them and, and even put up a hierarchical chart on there. And he said, guys, are this supposed to be like adult leaders to you, to your quorum? And they, they go, well, it doesn't feel right. No, it doesn't. So then he put up another one that's like, here you are, and they are the advisors. They sit over here. They advise you as leaders to do what? To lead. And it's funny, at the beginning of this, I'm watching some of these guys, and it's like, oh. <laughs> you're asking a lot from us. Yeah, you're supposed to, you know, if somebody's not active, you've got to figure out a way to go get them. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the bishop? No, they're to advise you. You're in charge. Well, I'm 12. I can't figure out how to do this. <laughs> There's a lot to ask. Yeah, I know. <laughs> But I did watch over a period of about 45 minutes. By the time we got to the end of that meeting, they were talking up, they were meeting together, they were, they were raising their hands. It's like, I watched this mantle descend on these young men. God. They said, i got to step up and be 
who I'm supposed to be. I'm not supposed to have the advisors do it all, I'm not supposed to have my bishop do it all. We're in charge, and we have the keys, and it's time to roll. And, and they were just, they were talkative, they were involved, they were answering questions, and 45 minutes earlier, they, they were just slumped down there waiting for the bishops to talk. It was a magnificent transformation. That's who we are. That's what the possibilities are. Because the Lord's going to roll stuff onto us, and if, and we will be comforted. We will step into the roles that we have, not just in this setting, but as uh, husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and whatever callings we have. That's the goal. We will be at one and do what He would do in our state. I pray that we can do that and uh, kind of take this and allow yourself to be comforted this week by the great advocate. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great week.